This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Uh, good evening. Welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi. You can find us on 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also find us online. You can stream us on channelafrica.co.za. I am with Ona Lentinti, Wisani Matebula and Muzibudi Makura. Your top stories. South Sudan president dispels rumors that he is ill and not fit for office. Organizations from around the world are leading efforts to raise awareness about maternal mental health as countries mark World Maternal Mental Health Day. In economic news, a lawyer acting for nearly half a million miners who contracted fatal lung diseases in South African mines says an out-of-court settlement is expected to be signed with gold companies implicated. And in sports, Jurgen Klopp says Liverpool will fight for their dreams ahead of tonight's Champions League semi-final second leg against Roma. On Lentinti has your news. Thank you, Spoo. Libyan officials are saying at least 11 people have been killed when militants stormed the head offices of Libya's Electoral Commission in the capital, Tripoli. Security forces engaged in a gun battle with the assailants in an attempt to regain control of the building, thus according to electoral officials. The BBC's Sebastian Ushers. Eyewitnesses describe hearing a huge explosion soon after. A big black plume of smoke then rose high above the building. Commission officials say that there have been a number of casualties as gunfire was heard coming from inside the building. But instability across Libya means that there are many armed groups that might have an interest in preventing parliamentary or presidential elections taking place by the end of this year. The Islamic State Jihadist Group has claimed responsibility for the deadly attack. South Sudan's president, Al-Fakir, has dispelled rumors that he is ill. This after his health came under the spotlight following rumors sweeping across the country and abroad that he is mentally ill and not fit for office. Kir says rumors are just another political propaganda. He also described a medical doctor who allegedly examined him and found that he was ill as a liar. James Shimanyula has more. The health of South Sudan president, Al-Fakir, has come under spotlight after rumors sweeping across the country and abroad that he is mentally ill and not fit to be in office. A Canadian-trained South Sudan medical doctor who has several times examined and treated the President Salva Kid says the Sudanese leader is suffering from kidney disease. Speaking to local South Sudan journalists from an undisclosed location on his way to Canada, Dr. Akot said, apart from the kidney disease, Kir is, as he put it, mentally ill. Nigeria has ordered increased security around markets and places of worship after twin suicide bomb attacks killed scores of people in the country's restive northeast. The emergency services says at least 26 people died in the blast in the town of Mobi in Adamawa State on Tuesday. But local residents say they buried more than 60 victims. Vice President Yemi Osi Banjo standing in for President Muhammadu Buhari, who has been on a visit to the United States, says the 
government is shocked and outraged by the attack. The attacks came a day after U.S. President Donald Trump promised Nigeria more support in the fight against Boko Haram Islamists, whose insurgency has killed tens of thousands of people since 2009. The new president of Botswana, Mkhwetsi Masisi, has fired his director of intelligence and security services, Colonel Siabelo Khosi. A statement from the president's permanent secretary, Keita Morupisi, says Khosi has been relieved of his duties with immediate effect. Peter Mkhosi has been had been appointed in the Position. This is Masisi's second major shakeup following the appointment of a new cabinet after his inauguration on the 1st of April. And lastly, South Africa's arts and culture minister, Natim Tetwa, has called for unity among the people of the African continent. Tetwa officially launched the National Africa Month at the Arts Artscape in Cape Town under the theme The Year of Nelson Mandela, Building a Better Africa and a Better World. The Africa Month program also celebrates the founding of Organizations of African Unity in 1963, later to become the African Union. In an interview, Tetra says Africa Month is an is as important uh, is an important aspect rather of government program which started four years ago. It's important to emphasize the point that Africa and Africans should know that their duty is to unite, is to integrate the continent itself. What was started by our forebears in the Organization of African Unity should find reflection on the challenges of today, which is by and large about the economic, social, cultural integration of the continent. Channel African News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. Thank you very much, Onele, 1706 Central African Time. Now, South Sudan President Salva Kiir says he is mentally fit and not sick, dispelling rumors that he is ill. Kiir described the rumors as political propaganda. He also described a medical doctor who allegedly examined him and found that he was ill as a liar. James Shimanyula reports. The health of South Sudan President Salva Kiir has come under spotlight after rumors sweeping across the country and abroad that he is mentally ill and not fit to be in office. According to President Kiir's official spokesman, Ateng Weka Teng, the South Sudanese leader is in good health and fit to continue to lead the country. Ateng said, and I quote, If the president is sick, the government will come out and tell the people of South Sudan about his health, confirming that indeed President Kiir is fit to be in office, his spokesman, Ateng Wekateng, had this to say. It is not about anything that the president does in his health that is subject to discussion. The president is healthy to the office 8 o'clock in the morning. But Mawen Akot, a Canadian-trained South Sudan medical doctor, who has several times examined and treated the President Salva Kiir, says the Sudanese leader is suffering from kidney disease. Speaking to local South Sudan journalists from an undisclosed location on his way to Canada, Dr. Akot said, apart from the kidney disease, Kiir is, as he put it, mentally ill. The President is not in the sound mind, he 
is not in the sound body to lead the country. Disclosing the disease that President Kiri is suffering from, Dr. Kot said. What I know, the president has some liver issues, and I'm afraid if it is not addressed, it will be fatal. The question that comes to mind at this juncture is whether or not Dr. Akot is telling lies about President Kiri's health on behalf of rebels fighting in the Juba administration. I'm not associated with any rebel group. I'm, I'm just speaking as a normal citizen and a concerned physician in the country. In many countries around the world, there are laws that protect patients' privacy and doctors are not legally allowed to disclose diseases that their patients suffer from. Back to Dr. Court to shed light on the aspect of medical ethics. My explanation is when we talk about uh, medical ethics, I respect the privacy. There is what we call Medical Health Protection Act, which is not existing in South Sudan, where your information are protected. But when you are the president of the country, you become a public figure. Your health status, people need to know about it. That was Mawen Akot, Canadian trained South Sudan medical doctor. Dr. Mawen has worked in South Sudan's hospitals since 2013 and was at one time a government consultant on medical matters. He claims to have examined and treated President Salva Kiir many times over the past four years. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The Southern African Development Community, or SEDEC, had an extraordinary double tracker meeting in Luanda and Angola last week. Topping the agenda were Lesotho, the DRC, and Madagascar. The chairperson of SEDEC, who is also president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, opened the meeting acknowledging that whilst there were various challenges in the region, considerable progress had been made and the region was stable. With elections coming up in countries like Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Swaziland, and the DRC. The SEDEC meeting conceded that there would need to be a commitment from ruling parties and opposition parties to ensure smooth, free and fair elections. To help us analyze the meeting, Channel Africa spoke to Professor Shadrach Guter, political analyst at the University of South Africa, and Levin Doe, a political analyst at the Twane University of Technology. I think what is important is meeting of the Troika is basically uh, pointing out three major issues uh, which are based on country-to-country basis. And I think that is important to take an overall view of what is what are the problems within the SADC region, the Southern Africa Development Community countries which is regional economic community within the Africa Union. And it is therefore important because the Africa Union is trying to use the regional economic communities as blocks for Mm. pushing forward idea of Africa Renaissance. Mm. But I would like to say that this time's meeting if we focus on the current meeting of the Troika made up of, of course, uh, South Africa is uh, currently chairing uh, SADC and therefore is leading that process, but we have other countries within it. Mm. Uh, what we are dealing with here is issues dealing with three countries in particular, and that is 
in Madagascar with the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, and with Lesotho. In my view, the Lesotho issue needs to be dealt with in really innovative ways, not just one of uh, top-down, whether when there's a crisis, they send in mission there, the mission agrees with the political parties that are struggling for each other and for state power, and that is all. There's nothing which is coming from the ground. In other words, approach peace-building and reorganizing the society from both bottom-up and top-down approach. Well, let me bring it to Levindor right now just to get his views in terms of his sum-up in terms of their achievements. I mean, as I highlighted, Ramaphosa sees progress being made. Uh, do you see the same things in that light as well, Mr. Ndo? I think what we, what we have um, in the three countries mentioned are the problems that are known by everybody in Africa, in SADC, and the citizens of those countries. And I would really love to agree with Professor Guto, if I have to start with Lesotho, that indeed the challenges that we have in Lesotho are mainly constitutional, but also at the same time, there seem to be a, a perception that seeks to say that the ordinary citizens in Lesotho are not being brought on board in terms of addressing their own challenges. And in the main, you always get the two major political parties in Lesotho fighting each other and the army and the police taking sides. And that, that is one of the biggest challenges that we face in Lesotho. If we move quickly to the DRC, you would know that Joseph, uh, President Kabila, has been in power for a very, very long time. And remember, when he got into power, he, he did not get in through the democratic processes. And one would quickly not forget what actually happened last time when they said his term of office has expired. Everybody else in the DRC wanted to see Joseph Kabila getting out of power. And I think it, it is upon this, the leaders in Africa to say, when time is up, I need to actually vacate office and ensure that democratic processes have to be in place. The coup d'etat in, in Madagascar and the very same leaders who still want to contest for positions of power, mm-hmm. it's a recipe for disaster for Madagascar. And I think as well, it is upon citizens themselves to come on board and say, what is it that we can do better? The top-down approach that SADC has to come up with seem to be the only solution now because Sadek cannot go and stay in a country permanently. Mm. But obviously, you need citizens to, be, to, to come on board. You need political leaders who must say, we need to rise above uh, our own personal interest, political party interest, and work for the unity and the interest of the entire population. Levindo is a political analyst at the Tuani University of Technology. You also heard from Professor Shadrach Guto, who is a political analyst. He's with the University of South Africa. They were speaking to Benjamin Mushadama. My name is Ruta Bushoke, musician from Tanzania. You're listening to Channel Africa.
catch me on Facebook, Bushoke Luther King. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Hold on. It's 17.16 Central African time. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, young people need to assume leadership to move to the African continent forward. This comes as the month of May marks Africa Month. Non-governmental organization African Diaspora Forum's Mark Bafo says the future remains bright for the continent as it has a lot of potential, contrary to be known as the dark continent previously. The continent is... Uh a brightness which will uh, enlighten the whole world. In the past, people were saying that this is a dark continent. But as we see things are developing currently in our continent, we can see that uh, Africa is the future of the entire Earth. And that's why, as the young generation, we should take advantage to make sure that uh, Issues of corruption, issues of maladministration, issues of uh, bad governance in our continent, issues of human rights abuse are eradicated completely in our continent. We should make sure and involve the youth, make sure that the youth take ownership of the continent educate themselves for them to lead tomorrow. We know in some countries, currently among the 54 countries that our continent is, some leaders don't give any chance to the youth. But we say the youth must make things happen that wherever people don't want to smell democracy, they are forced to embrace democracy, human rights, good governance. And that's what we are promoting. Again, just in a nutshell, which issues stand out for you on the continent and that which you feel that need to be addressed urgently? We need to educate our youth. That's one issue that we cannot delay. Why? Because once people are educated, they take, they take ownership. They know how to analyze things. They understand things. They can do things. They create things for themselves. And they, they get involved in processes. So, so we need to educate our, our youth. And uh, we need to expose the corrupt leaders because they're delaying development. And uh, you cannot allow individuals to take public money and make it their own. It's very important that we expose corruption. You are of the view that uh, the youth or young people are disillusioned uh, by Nelson Mandela's pan-Africanism. If you can just break uh, that down for us and elaborate uh, why those are your thoughts. The youngsters today are asking so much. And we are saying that uh, what should happen is that we should ask ourselves what are we adding to what our forefathers, the Nelson Mandela's, 
the Nyerere's, the Lumumba's, and so on and so forth. What they did and uh, what they achieved in the continent should be for us the line where we pick it up and we aid our, our ours. We should not ask ourselves why they didn't do more than what they did because they could they could only do so much and as human beings they cannot go further than that and uh, they're no longer so let us pick uh, where they left it let us continue the struggle let us not rest until the continent is completely and totally free and for the continent to be free is like you achieve uh, currently to be working toward Agenda 2063. Mark Pafo is the chairperson of the African Diaspora Forum, talking to Komoto Mopulane. Organizations from around the world are today leading efforts to raise awareness about maternal mental health as countries mark World Maternal Mental Health Day. The idea is to, among other things, spread the awareness of mental or psychiatric disorders that are prevalent in the perinatal period, the first 1,000 days of life, in order to ensure access to mental health care during this vulnerable time. Dr. Bavi Vithilingam, a specialist psychiatrist, at the Akeso Kinderworth Clinic in South Africa's Cape Town City says maternal mental health during the perinatal period should be a priority. It's a priority for several reasons. The first reason is that perinatal depression, anxiety and other mental health issues are a major public health burden. They affect between one in three and one in five pregnant women. So that is a lot of women. They also can have significant effects for the child. So women who have perinatal mental health issues, their babies are more at risk of not growing properly, of having low birth weight, of them going into preterm labor. And then also once the baby is born, a mum who's got a perinatal mental health issue is less able to respond sensitively to her baby. So it poses a risk for that baby's growth and development. Are there any risk factors, doctor, that predisposes mothers to perinatal mental health problems? The biggest risk factor for a mum is somebody who's had a perinatal mental health problem in a past pregnancy. And then your second biggest risk factor would be somebody who's got a current mental health condition or has a history of a mental health condition. Other factors would be things like poor social support or poor partner support, other stresses like financial problems. And then last but definitely not least are women who've got alcohol and substance use problems. These women are at high risk of having a perinatal mental health problem. And what signs and symptoms can occur during this period? How does one identify them? Often mums feel overwhelmed. They feel like they can't cope. Mums can talk about feeling hopeless or down or depressed. Alternatively, they can feel very anxious. They can be very preoccupied with the baby. They feel like they're bad mothers. And at its most extreme, women can experience thoughts of suicide or thoughts of wanting to harm their babies. Are there specific mental health problems that usually affect mothers during this period? So you can get a whole range of mental health problems. Most women 
have anxiety or depression or a mixture of anxiety and depression, but there are some mothers, particularly those who've had a past history of bipolar mood disorder or a history of schizophrenia, who can have their illness relapse or become worse during their pregnancy and in the postnatal period. So what happens if these problems go untreated? If the problems go untreated, they can go on to become chronic. I mean, when you have a mom who's suffering, the second thing is that they go on for a long time. And like I said before, they can really affect the baby. So they affect the way moms interact with the baby. They affect the baby's growth. They affect the baby's development. And untreated in the long term puts that child at a high risk of having their own mental illness. Are you able to share with us, Doctor, some of the best tips on the management of maternal mental health problems during the perinatal period? Well, I think the first thing in the management of a maternal mental health problem is for mums to get help. So we'd like all women to be screened for mental health problems during pregnancy. And we also tell women, if you are worried about yourself, go and get help. And help can be psychotherapy, help, which is the talking therapies that are very, very effective. Help can also be medication. And medication is very effective during pregnancy and during breastfeeding. And medication is also very safe during pregnancy and breastfeeding. So these are the different options that we have. Now, for the general public, how can they join in the activities to support World Maternal Mental Health Day? Well, I think if the public can be more aware of mental health problems in mums, if you know a mother or if you are a mother that where you are concerned something may be wrong, help that mum go and get assistance. Be kind to yourself as a mother. Be kind to other mothers. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. Also, just to understand that mothers with mental health problems are not bad mothers. They're just mothers who are ill. And to be aware of that and to support them and ask them what support they need. That is Dr. Bavi Vittelingham, a specialist psychiatrist at the Akeso Kenworth Clinic in South Africa's Cape Town City, talking to Elizabeth Ledecha. According to reports, 15 people, including a priest, have been killed and dozens injured following an outbreak of violence in Bangui in the Central African Republic. The violence is described as one of the biggest in the capital so far since 2015. The medical aid agency, Doctors Without Borders, says it treated about 60 people in its health facilities after the attack yesterday. Paul Brockman is MSF's head of mission in the Central African Republic. I can confirm that the MSF hospital at at Sika here in Bangui had eight people dead before the end of yesterday. Four arrived dead and four died while they were in the hospital. I've also heard the similar reports of a total ranging between 12 and 16 killed yesterday, and I don't know if anyone knows the exact count total from yesterday. It's also not entirely clear exactly what started the incident yesterday. There are different reports and different rumors circulating, What is clear is that quite a number of people, including one priest at a church not far from the Pekasank PK5 neighborhood here in Bangui, were hurt and or killed. One priest was killed, others were both killed and hurt. And we believe that it it seems from reports that it was either a shootout between different armed actors or possibly an attack on the church itself but it's not definitive yet exactly what started everything yesterday morning. And how is the situation as we speak, Paul? 
Well, yesterday afternoon, things became quite tense when uh, a number of people went to demonstrate at the presidential palace in downtown Bangui, near the center of town. I'm told that they were possibly carrying some of the, the bodies of people that were killed during the incident. And again, speaking for our hospital at Sika, which is one of the main surgical and trauma centers here in Bangui, we were receiving wounded patients throughout the day. By the end of the day, they had seen more than 78 patients between there and the other facility at Bayadombia. I think the total was approximately 92 by the evening. Some of those were lightly wounded. Some of those were more seriously wounded. And in other parts of the city, there were reports that I heard from staff that were coming on or off duty at our different centers and hospitals and things that they saw cars that had been burned or other wounded people on the streets. Yesterday was a very tense day. Today seems to have been somewhat calm. There have been, I understand, calls from leaders in different communities and different religious communities calling for, for calm and asking everyone to step back and, and respect each other. But it remains very definitely a tense moment, and all the staff I speak with and all the people working in our hospitals are concerned that it could escalate further unless people really agree to just step back and try to find a peaceful resolution right now. Paul Brogman is head of mission for Doctors Without Borders in the Central African Republic on the line from Bangui and in conversation with Jane Rabotata. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom. The world has seen how deeply he believes in freedom, human dignity, and the right of the individual to fulfill his or her dream. I think for the rest of the world, his legacy will be the symbolism of his own character of his extraordinary gift for forgiveness and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela is a living embodiment of the highest values of the United Nations. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's giant in history. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. 17.30 Central African Time, your news headlines here on The Islamic State Jihadist Group claims responsibility for the deadly attack on Libya's election commission. South Sudan's president, Salva Kiir, has dispelled rumors that he is ill, and the new president of Botswana, Mokhoitse Masisi, fires his director of intelligence and security services, Colonel Siabelo Khosi. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi.
1731 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zondi with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. It's info at channelafrica.co.za if you prefer emailing us. Now for the first time in Sub-Saharan Africa, global payments at technology company Visa has launched its global startup program called Visa Everywhere Initiative. The initiative is aimed at assigning entrepreneurs and small businesses to take on financial and e-commerce briefs and innovative payment models to help solve challenges for businesses in the future. To discuss this further, we're now joined on the line by Visa's Senior Director for Digital Solutions, Geraldine Mitchley. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Geraldine. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, Geraldine, what's Visa Everywhere? So the Visa Everywhere initiative is, is nothing new to our organization. We've been running this across the globe. Uh, this is the 15th iteration of, of this uh, initiative. And essentially it's a, it's a competition and it's a reach out to the tech community, to startups, to developers, um, to come and access our payment capabilities um, and, and, and look at how local payment solutions could be built off the, the, the Visa capabilities. Um, what it is in uh, uh, Sub-Sahara is it's, it's the first time that we're reaching out to the markets in this region. So hopefully we're looking for uh, developers and, and startups from across Sub-Sahara to come and take part in, in the competition, um, look at what they can access in terms of visa payments capabilities, um, and, and come and showcase some of their uh, business ideas in terms of solving for local needs and um, how digital payments will, will enable those uh, business ideas. Is it all kinds of digital payments or are you just looking at uh, payments using cards? It's, it's, it's basically all kinds of digital uh, payments. So although you know, it, a, a lot of people would perceive or, or think of Visa as, as cards, essentially we're not, we're not just a card, it's about connecting that, that value store, connecting that uh, digital account. Um, and, and Visa is really that, that underlying technology that connects consumers to, to merchants and uh, issuers to acquirers. So um, connecting you know, all of the banks across the globe with an interoperable payments capability, but not necessarily limited to card. It could happen via Bluetooth, it could happen via your mobile phone, via text, via a chat channel. There's many, many different ways uh, that we can enable a payment because of the way that technology works today and because of the fact that we can digitize all of those capabilities. Um, Why are you looking for your own initiative? Because one can say there are many other um, similar methods in in Africa, M-Pesa being probably the most prominent one. There's M-Copa. There are many others, really. We're really just looking to um, expose those capabilities. Often you would find that um, Visa is perceived to you know, be, be, be limited to maybe card payments and, and limited to uh, be bought to you by a bank. Um, and, and we're looking for open collaboration. So it's, it's not to say that you know, all of those other alternative payments don't exist, um, but there's definitely opportunity to even um, collaborate with, with uh, those, those competitors. Um, we also engage with some of some of those organisations directly um, to allow them to access our capability and let them focus on on, on the business that they in, such as maybe um, bringing prepaid airtime or, or water down to grassroots, but allowing them to access a payment capability that is robust, secure, safe, 
um, and, and carries that, that um, promise and, and flag of what you expect from a visa payment. Uh, what then happens to and with the startups that bring ideas that impress you guys? So um, what we've done is we've installed, um, I guess, three challenges um, for, for, for our region where we've, we've, um, we've put forward some, some problem statements, I guess you would say, around the things that we're looking to solve um, and that generally, um, you know, government and business are looking to solve across, across the region. So things like financial inclusion, things like growing e-commerce, uh, things like um, um, developing local homegrown solutions for cash on delivery for maybe an e-commerce purchase. So what we've done is we've distilled um, several ideas into uh, three unique problem statements which we've um, uh, published as, as part of the competition. Uh, and, and we're looking for businesses to come through and submit the ideas. Uh, what we will do then is we will go through a selection process um, and, and, and look at you know, what, what, what is coming through as, as the most unique and the most innovative idea in terms of how it's accessing maybe our APIs and our, our SDKs to, to, to solve, but also how it's addressing those particular market needs. And we'll come up with um, uh, really a short list of uh, uh, businesses or individuals um, through that, that submission, and we will choose a winner then against each of the problem statements. So we've published three problem statements, and we'll choose a, uh, a basically a finalist against each of those problem statements. Each of those finalists will then um, win some prize money. So there's prize money up for grabs of $25,000 US dollars. Um, and then there will also be an overall prize winner. So out of the three uh, winners to each of those uh, problem statements, we will then choose a final winner out of the three, and they will receive a further $25,000. So the, the, the ultimate winner uh, receives a, a cash prize of $50,000. However, that's not really the main um, idea around the Visa Everywhere initiative. What we really like to do is then look at how we mentor that business and how we take that business and connect it into some real-world commercialization, uh, which, is, which has been the success of the Visa Everywhere initiative across the globe so far. Mm. Um, we know what's in it for the startups that come up with these ideas. Uh, what's in it for you as Visa? Um, so we are we, we continuously realizing that that we well we have already uh, shifted and changed in terms of how we do business. Uh, we've we've moved into kind of an open API environment to ensure that uh, startups and, and fintech are free to innovate and um, build creative solutions that are homegrown. So we're looking to stop the process of you know maybe conceptualizing solutions that are born out of our head office in San Francisco and think that we can roll it out across some of our regions. And we would rather see it be uh, coming from the ground up to say, you know, get the best of maps from Google, get the best of logging from Facebook, get the best of payment from us. But whatever you can imagine in terms of the business requirements that you're looking to solve for, we want to allow that to flourish. And that's really what's in it for us is a challenge in our business to make sure that we are, are kind of um, in opening ourselves up to allow for some some innovation that is is locally relevant. All right. Thank you very much. Sure. That is Visa Senior Director for Digital Solutions, Geraldine Mitchley. 
We the people of South Africa feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom. The world has seen how deeply he believes in freedom, human dignity and the right of the individual to fulfill his or her dream. I think for the rest of the world his legacy will be the symbolism of his own character, of his extraordinary gift for forgiveness and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela is a living embodiment of the highest values of the United Nations. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's giant in history. 1739 Central African time. After two years of deliberations on stricter measures on smoking, South Africa's Control of Tobacco Products and Electronic Delivery Systems Bill is expected to be gazetted for public comment this week. Hailed as the country's first significant reform to tobacco control legislation in a decade, the bill, amongst others, will regulate the ban on the display of tobacco products in all formal and informal retail and wholesale outlets. The ban on the sale of tobacco products through vending machines introduce a complete ban on uh, indoor smoking, including the removal of closed-off designated smoking areas and severely restrict outdoor smoking areas. Director of the Tobacco, Alcohol and Gambling Advisory Advocacy and Action Group, Peter Uko, says the country has been waiting for this move for decades. The proposed bill takes care of a lot of matters which have not been dealt with over many years, such as banning all indoor smoking and no longer allowing the 25%, banning displays of tobacco products at retail, taking away branding and having standardized or plain packaging with large graphic health warning messages and health and other messages. There are many things that need to be done, including, which is not in this bill, increasing tax so that it increases the retail selling price. But overall, we are delighted that the process has eventually got past the cabinet stage. You've been at this for a very long time. As far as 32 years ago, you initiated a process to ban smoking in all municipal buildings. Why was it important for you to push for this ban? Well, there were a number of reasons. Remember that it was way back, started in 1986. I was the mayor of a little town called Edenvale, and it just did not make any sense to me that we as a council had clinics and we wanted young parents, young mothers, to bring their children to our clinics to be weighed and checked and so on, and there were mothers and other nurses smoking. Now, we didn't have health warnings on our packets at that time. There was talk of cigarettes being unhealthy and dangerous, and, and it wasn't predominant as it is now, but it just didn't make sense to me. Also, if we were in a council meeting or any other meeting, the smoke in the room from other people smoking just was intolerable. It made us stink. It was awful. It gave people hay fever and sinus and aggravated asthma. And so we initiated that process in order to prevent that all. In 1989, it took three years, we actually took a resolution banning smoking in all municipal buildings in Edenville. The remarkable thing is that it was quite well accepted and appreciated by the bulk of the people. Only one or two smokers complained about it, but overall that was great. There's organizations that certainly have not welcomed these attempts by government. The tobacco industry and the food industry have been using job creation to defend themselves against government regulations, Mr. Yuko. Yes, of course, that's their fallback position, job 
creation and job losses. But the truth is that cigarettes are made by machines, not by people. That's number one. Number two is the money which people spend on tobacco products doesn't disappear. People will then, when they stop smoking, spend their money on other goods, whether it's clothing or books for education or housing or transport. There will be jobs created in other industries and income via tax and VAT for the government. And there overall will be no losses. The industry tends to exaggerate and then over-exaggerate all arguments, many of them fallacious, to protect their industry. Their bottom line is profit. They don't care who dies. Taking from Professor Cornel van Vielbeek, who's the director of the Economics of Tobacco Control Project at the University of Cape Town, saying that since 2004, South Africa's tobacco control strategy has largely fizzled out. And we also heard from the Minister of Health, Dr. Aaron Mutualedi himself, admitting that South Africa had lagged behind in its fight against tobacco control. What do you think of how South Africa has handled the regulation of the tobacco industry. Yes, I agree with both of them. First of all, Corne is a fantastic economics expert, and he will tell you that we've lagged behind, for example, on tax. The purpose of tax is not to raise revenue for the government. That's just part of the process. The purpose of tax or excise on tobacco products is or should be to increase the retail selling price. That is the cost to the consumer or affordability by the consumer. If tax is properly structured in order to do that, then the retail will increase the retail price, and it should be, in the words of Iraj Abidi and another economist, it should increase consistently and in such a way that the retail selling price and affordability gets progressively more expensive. That way more and more people will stop smoking and we will save more and more lives. When it comes to uh, the Minister of Health, I've spoken to him extensively about these things, and we know there have been too many delays, bureaucratic delays, uh, some arguments, interference, by the way, by the tobacco industry, giving misinformation to organizations such as the Department of Health, such as Revenue Services, misleading them about illicit trade. All those things are nonsense when you look into people's rights in terms of the Constitution. Right number one has to be the right to life. Tobacco products kill people, and the manufacturers of cigarettes know that their products kill people. There's no question about that. That was Peter Uko, Director of the Tobacco, Alcohol and Gambling Advisory Advocacy and Action Group, on the line with Selena Dobong. Your economic news, here's Usani Matewula. Thanks, Pumilele. The Steel and Engineering Industries Federation of Southern Africa says the latest U.S. tariff decision will cost local exporters around $250 million and lead to massive job losses in an already limping steel industry. The U.S. this week rejected South Africa's application for exemption from new steel and aluminium tariffs. South African exports of the metals to the U.S. account for point. 1.4% and 1.6% of U.S. global imports, respectively. Safe's chief economist, Michael Ade. 
we are definitely disappointed because this is an industry that brings in a lot of foreign reserves, not just to the local still, uh, sector, but to the economy. And we're also worried about the quantity of export to the U.S. that's going to be stifled and it's going to derail export competitiveness to the U.S. So it's going to have secondary knock-on effect on employment within the industry and in the country generally. And it's going to also lead, of, lead to issues of dumping. Because when you have a situation of oversupply from China and there's a reduction in demand from the U.S., you have most of these countries who like to seek other markets to export their aluminum and steel products. So we are worried that the South African market is going to be flooded with this cheap uh, import from other countries. And South Africa's Minister of Public Enterprises, Praveen Goran, has refuted claims by the Board of Transport Parastatal, Transnet, that it acted on the recommendations of the Wexman report. Transnet's top executives and board members appeared before the Oversight Committee on Public Enterprises on the corporate plan of the entity. Godan told the committee that instead the board took extraordinary efforts to hide what happened and is not aware of any actions taken. So I can only tell you these are possible areas uh, of damage. Soon, hopefully, we can put some numbers to it. But secondly, it's been a huge cost to the country uh, in terms of our reputation as a good site for investment. And in recent years, we've earned ourselves a reputation for instability within SOEs uh, on the one hand, uh, but also for fairly rampant corruption on the other hand. And the opposite is the case now, where we are seen to be doing things differently and are beginning to rectify some of the problems of, of the past. The European Commission has set out details of the first budget for the period after Britain leaves the European Union post brexit Brexit. The EU expects uh, to spend more than one trillion US dollars over the seven years from 2021. The BBC's Kevin Kennelly reports. In the light of the departure of one of the union's largest net contributors, the president of the EU Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, acknowledged there had to be savings. That will mean more cash for border controls and migration policies, but less for poor areas in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. Even farm subsidies, long the EU's biggest single cost, will shrink, demanding that countries conform to core values on issues like the rule of law before they qualify for some payments will be resisted by countries like Poland, which will feel the measure is aimed at them. The IMF has approved a new three-year loan agreement of $112.3 million for Malawi. George Mango has more. According to IMF, this will be achieved through fiscal consolidation to ensure long-term debt and external sustainability, containing inflation and resilient growth, tackling governance challenges, improving financial intermediation and strengthening access to finance and advancing critical growth supporting structural reforms. Following the executive board discussion on Malawi, Deputy Managing Director Tao Zhang and acting chair said Malawi has shown progress in achieving macroeconomic stabilization following two years of drought with a rebound in growth and inflation reduced to single digits. Financial indicators, the dollar at 9.65, Botswana Pula 9.9, Zambian Kwacha, commodities gold $1,331, platinum $879 per fine ounce, brand crude oil at $73.25 per barrel. That's how it's looking.
Thanks, Susanne. It is now time for Sports News with Mosibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. Euron uh, Klopp says Liverpool will fight for their dreams ahead of tonight's Champions League semi-final second leg against AS Roma. Now, five-time European champions Liverpool hold a 5-2 lead heading into the tie at the Stadio Olimpico and are favourites to reach the final for an eighth time in their history. Now, despite conceding two goals, or late goals rather, in last week's emphatic first leg win at Anfield, Klopp knows his men are in the box seat to take their place in the next um, um next month's final in Kiev. Now Roma stunned Barcelona in the quarterfinals overturning a 4-1 first leg deficit to be the tournament favourites 3-0 at home progressing to the last four on the away goals rule. Now Klopp does admit though that Roma's stunning turnaround will ensure his side guards against complacency. While back home, Mamelodi Sundowns head coach Pizzo Mosimane says his team will not sign many players next season. Sundowns are fresh from another successful season after winning the league title for a record eighth time last weekend. In the past, the PSL champions used to sign many players at the beginning of every season, but Mosamani says they only have a few additions next season. We've already signed one. Okay. We are about to sign another one next week. Okay. And Mamelodi Sundowns is no longer doing the same thing of 15 players, you remember? It's two, three all the time. Three, two, and we know who we want. We know how many which, which players we want and we know where we need to reinforce. We're not going to go on a, on a shopping spree because we won the league. Because that thing backfires sometimes. Eh? You, you, I don't want to mention clubs' names. After you win the league now, this is not too good. Then you, you go other, then you bring everybody. You know, we need to, to be very careful. And I must be loyal to the boys who do it every week and a week out with, with me. And, and, and most especially when they deliver their performances, you know. Limpopo MEC for Sports, Arts and Culture Onika Muloi has a joint growing chorus of support for Olympic medalist Kasta Semenya. This follows the IAAF's decision to introduce new eligibility regulations for female athletes with difference of sexual development from middle distances. Now, under these new rules, female athletes will have to take medication to lower their testosterone. Now, uh, the Limpopo-born athlete is seen as a target for the rules set to come into effect. In November this year. Now, last week, South Africa's Minister of Sports and Recreations, Togo Silikasa, did say a department was going to challenge the IAAF, and Moloi echoed those sentiments. We have challenged, actually, you know, the, uh, the national bodies to say that we need to put a team together. We need to make sure that we take, you know, this uh, IWAF to the sport arbitration, you know, uh, so that we are able to can make sure that the court takes the final, final, final say. And not only the courts, but we are going to make sure that we put the necessary pressure that we can be able to put as a country and as a province so that the CASA is not humiliated because it's very much unfair, especially in this year of Nelson Mandela, wherein we have to make sure that we protect the right of every individual and CASA's right needs to be protected as well.
And finally, in Cricket News, West Indies all-rounder Carlos Bathwaite has signed to play for Kent in their opening uh, four matches of the Vitality Blast T20 competition. Now, the World T20 champion who made his name hitting four successive sixes in the final over the 2016 final against England will join the squad before the opening group match at Surrey on the 6th of July. There's our sports news at the Sour. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-six Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Let's recap our top stories. South Sudan president dispels rumors that he is ill and not fit for office. Organization for organizations from around the world are leading efforts to raise awareness about maternal mental health. His countries mark World Maternal Mental Health Day, and that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Maoma, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and. And the rest of the team, thank you for listening. You can send us your emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus 2776-300-3327. Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. We leave you with Ama Blesa by Mlindo, the vocalist, and DJ Maporis. <laughs> Till I